Hello everybody and welcome to Brumbagoon, you will not get there on a road bike. Regular season, regular times, regular episodes in this crazy season. But still, you will not get there on the road bike. That's the most important thing. Another important thing, go to your application or host or whatever you want to call where you're listening to this podcast. And if you are kind, leave five stars rating and do whatever you can in order to share it. Because if you like this episode, then probably somebody else of your circle would like it as well and would be happy to listen to everything I'm gonna say. Not alone, of course. I will never talk alone anymore. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Something else that you can do, you can go to Instagram, CC or Broomwagon Podcast and send me a message, whatever feedback you have. I would be happy to read and to talk to you about anything comes into your mind, into my mind. I'm happy to talk and expect a super long voice memos. That's why I have a podcast at the end of the day. But let's talk about this episode. Or better, let's talk about the future. No, let's talk about this episode. Something more is coming uh, by the end of this 2023. And uh, yeah, something more, something more. I don't know what's happening, whatever, but it's going to be fun. But let's talk about this episode and let's kick off. I received this message from the contact form of my website. And this guy is called Stefan, Stefan Barth. And he told me, hi Stefano, I think you read it around, but I just published also in English my book that is called Ultra Cycling and Bikepacking. All you need to know is not the classic uh, adventure bikepacking book, but it's actually a book where I talk on the best ways to prepare on a scientific way with training to your ultra endurance event. But it's not a classic training book. There's also something more. There are quotes from the most important bike packers, ultra racers around. Are you interested in having a chat about the book, about whatever topic you want? As soon as the new edition in English is gonna come. I was jumping on my chair, I was jumping off my socks and I said, of course, Stefan, and of course, it took a bit more time than expected, but we sat down and we discussed about many topics, not only general topics, the classic, how you doing, what's your bike, but also in-depth talking about how to train and what to train for your ultra-endurance cycling, in this case, life. Get a drink and listen to it. And if you have comments about the scientific part, send everything to me. I will be sure to refer everything to Stefan. Enjoy! This was a super amazing story, actually, because I was reading about this book all over, and at a certain point I actually received a message directly from Stefan saying, hey Stefano, do you want to talk about the topic that I've been writing about since a bit of time? And maybe we can go through a lot of things because I think that actually we can have a good conversation. I said, yes, it took a bit of time. I have to say sorry for that, Stefan, but my podcast in this period is a bit all over the place. But I'm happy that I'm here talking with you. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Hi, Stefano. And hi, all the listeners. Thank you for, for the opportunity and for the invitation. That's Always. Great. Always, that always. We finally made it. <laughs> yeah, it's always <laughs> super good for me to talk with uh, with people that are actually more or less with the same values that I have and with the same interests for core, of course. But most importantly, people that are have the same name that I have. So I'm Stefan, or you are Stefan. So why not inviting you here? That's perfect. That's reason enough, probably. 
absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's talk a bit into the conversation. So we're talking about a book. We were talking about you, Stefan. Tell us more, because of course I can introduce you, but I'm gonna make a mess. Uh, maybe something that I can make a mess with is actually saying your name and surname, and be sure that I will probably mispronounce it. Is Stefan Barth, right? Yeah, we don't have a th in German. You see, so it's actually Barth, mm -hmm. but yeah. It's always difficult to pronounce. <laughs> it's perfect. It's, I'm happy that I mispronounce it, so I am in trend. I do it all the times. So, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in good company with that. <laughs> That's perfect. So, Stefan, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, so probably some of you have already, or like Stefano, seen the book Ultra Cycling and Bikepacking somewhere floating around social media um, because this was like translated to English in this year or just the last couple of weeks. And that's pretty much... A main part of what I did in the last five years now, trying to write this book. And at the same time, I'm working as a coach and coaching athletes, more and more ultra cyclists, since the sport gets bigger and more and more people are trying to become, yeah, more successful, more competitive in the sports. And that's pretty much what I'm doing as a, as a job right now. And now I'm happy to to share some insights of, of this whole book topic and about the interviews I did for this project. And yeah, it's always nice to to see that people are interested in what you what you are doing if you put a lot of work and and um, yeah, a lot of dedication into a project that that covers a lot of a lot of ground, actually. That's perfect. So let's take one second on you, Stefan. So you said that actually uh, you are a coach and you're interested, I think, also because that's the topic of the book in bikepacking and ultracycling. Tell me all the foundation of it. So how everything started with a coach career and then now why at a certain point what you were doing before and then what happened and when happened that you were hit by the bug of <laughs> the bikepacking and ultracycling? Yeah, it's it's a really a long development. I think it's yeah. As you can imagine, you don't wake up once and you say, "Oh yeah, ultra cycling! What a nice sport!" I will I will write uh, jump into the deep end and do I don't know what the Great Divide or stuff like this. <laughs> so it was a, a development starting at as a teenager when I got the first bike or it wasn't called bike packing then, but when I did my first overnighters and the first couple of rides that then they got longer and longer. And once you, uh, I went with friends and crossing the Alps as a teenager, and then it moved on to getting three weeks, four weeks, maybe as a young adult. And at the same time, I, I uh, did competitive sports, but mm -hmm. at that time, not as a cyclist, but as a triathlete. Okay. So I started in school with the Olympic distance and also with triathlon, it started to it was more fascinating for me to make the courses longer than trying to get faster myself. So it was just a, yeah, uh, it was for me, it was the logic consequence to do Ironman distances afterwards. And starting from there, that was when I got infected with long distance cycling, actually, because at that time I got to know uh, that there is a guy called Christoph Strasser out there. And I noticed that there is, a, a, yeah, something like an ultra cycling scene, and that there's guys crossing crossing North America in one go, and I was fascinated by that. So this was when I started to dig deeper into this long distance cycling. 
apart from touring. Until then, it was more touring and trying out how long can I go. So I did like, okay, you can do a century ride, you can do a double century ride, but can I also do 300 kilometers in one go? So I tried just, I, I just tried it. I, I went from my, the town where I started to, to my parents, which is about 340 kilometers. And, but it was never competitive. It was just. How long did it take for the first time? Ooh, almost a full day, I okay. think. Okay. But without sleeping or stuff like this, but on my touring bike and with luggage on it, with the panniers, panniers. at the back. Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, far, far away from today's uh, bikepacking racing setups that I used. So it was pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. And I also carried all the stuff that I will need for the vacation at my parents at that time. So yeah was yeah. way overloaded for <laughs> for a distance like that but but that was what kept me going or what what motivated me at the first place to just to try how far can i go in one day but it was always from this touring point more or less and then when i when i heard about this race across america thing and all the guys doing this then i started to think okay this this would be nice and that was when i started in the what was it i don't know 2012 13 something like this uh, when I started with 24-hour races then to, yeah, to have a, it's a good safe space actually to start with the sport. I would still recommend it to a lot of people um, because, yeah, you are going in circles, which sounds a little bit stupid, but it's also a bit addi addictive and you have like a very uh, safe place to to try out, to, to to not to sleep for 24 hours, for example. And yeah, that's how I started with 24 hour races. And then I got hooked up, obviously, and it progressed to supported races like the Glockner Man in the Alps, and then kind of circumvented back to bikepacking. And I did like the race around Germany or last year, um, the European Divide Trail. But this was again, more with the touring character, not so much in a racing racing mode. But yeah, that's that's it. So the passion developed into more passion. And at some point, to come back to your original question, <laughs> you also asked how this will or how this uh, developed into a job for me. So um, that's that's not obvious, um, I think. So I, I uh, always was fascinated by sports and this was what I wanted to study in first place. But yeah, just a couple of weeks before I started or I wanted to start my, my sports study, I um, had a ski accident Ooh. and yeah, I was not possible to do the, the tests that you need to do to, um, to study or at least for the universities that I was interested in. And so I decided, okay, if you don't know what to do, yeah, maybe you, you can study economics first and then you can still switch and how the life plays um you make friends and you you're don't anymore <laughs> you're yeah <stuck. laughs> yeah you're stuck you're stuck you you know you get sucked into this whole microcosm and that's when i decided hey yeah maybe you will finish your economic studies um but it was never my my dream job i worked a couple of years in this area and then i switched to part-time and I did like study against, um, it's called medical fitness coaching, um, what I'm doing now. And I studied it, um, part-time, uh, while, while working in economics. And afterwards I founded my coaching business SBU coaching and also did this, um, 
for a couple of time um, besides my real job then. And, and at some point in time, I just had to decide which way do I want to go. It's just too much to have two jobs, one that yeah, earns a lot more money, but the one other one that you are more passionate about. And when I was at a point where I was like certain that I will publish the book, then I decided, okay, you you need to make a decision now, which which life do you want to live? And obviously I decided for, for my passion and started to work full-time as a coach and at the same time published, published the German edition of Ultracycling and Bikepacking. That's super awesome. I mean, it's so inspiring, uh, really, Stefan, hearing actually voices of people that they are getting into. I actually, I love how you described it. I mean, pretty candidly. Uh, I wanted to do something, but then lies brought me in the way that I didn't think about. And uh, economics, you make friends, the social part is always important, or then the stability part is always important, but that passion is always there. It's going to be always there. And then at a certain point, you will need to to pull the trigger, let's say, or to switch on the light and yeah, say, okay, yeah. where should I go? And then uh, it's cool that actually you put all your effort in something and then the decision is more natural, let's say, than, uh, than that. Of course, it's always tough to take decisions, don't get me wrong. But actually when something really eats and actually occupies a lot of your time and you see a light at the end of it and actually a purpose of what you're doing, it's that cool that actually... The decision comes naturally and then you go in the direction you're satisfied on it right yeah and you need this development because i'm not i'm actually not sure if i would have studied sports in the first mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. i may just have ended up at nike in the marketing apartment and doing stuff like this and with the first job i had the opportunity to go on a lot of long vacations i always had like three or four weeks um, off in the summer and did my bikepacking or my touring yeah and this was one more step into this direction. So, yeah. But anyway, it's never good to have regrets about your decisions in ever, the past. Ever, ever, just ever. It is looking what it forward. Is. Absolutely. Yeah. It is what it is. It's a path. And it's cool that actually it's, it's a puzzle also that puts all the pieces together and you never realized it. And you yeah. also are hungry all the time to do something different. I just want to ask you a sharp question and then we're going to actually go a bit deeper into the book and uh, the coaching and everything that actually is in the book because it's super interesting. But I have this curiosity. It's a question that I was used to ask pretty often. Uh, but then, I mean, so from time to time, it gets actually not in the right direction and stuff. But I'm super interested in that. You were actually describing and say that in your first uh, long-distance trip, uh, you had a bike that was super heavy with panniers and whatever. What yeah. setup do you have now? Because you're still traveling. You were talking about the European divide. And by the way, a shout out to Andy who set up that track that is just super amazing. And uh, he was already in this podcast, super great guy. But you were talking about then your trip, these 300 and plus kilometers from your place to your parents with panniers and everything. And then Europe. what's the setup of the bike that you have right now? If you have just one or more? Um, now I, I have... A road bike mm -hmm. and a mountain bike mostly that I'm using. And um, yeah, I would call it a typical bikepacking setup. So it's a saddlebag, as rocket, and um, actually on the on the mountain bike off-road, I, I like to use a backpack. So I'm a backpack guy, even mm -hmm. if it's very hot. Um, somehow I, I like that. But I've with also water, right? With so water, but water. yeah, I'm using a little bit bigger backpack actually. Mm. So I also have some some like the clothes that I'm putting on and off, like my rain jacket and 
yeah, on the European divide, you have a lot of rain, or at least I had a lot of rain this year. So it's uh, constantly putting on your rain clothes. Um, yeah, and then using a top tube back and sometimes a little little um, back at the front, but not always. So it's it's rather minimalistic now. But it always depends on how do you want to go. I know if you want to, from the start on, you want to be more comfortable and want to do more of a touring, I would recommend always just just pack a little bit more. Mm. And next time you will probably, you know, uh, I didn't even touch this piece of clothing and okay, then you leave it at home. But at the beginning, I would always start with too much and then re- try to reduce this and not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, that's a classic, right? I mean, and that's also something that you are training in your bikepacking experience. You start with a lot of stuff, then the, the, uh, the other time, the second time that you're traveling with your bike, you're shaving a bit of weight, and then you're shaving again, and then you're shaving again, and then you arrive to your perfect setup. And then, as you were saying, it depends also what you're doing, because the European yeah. uh, trail divide, it's something, also because it's a bit more off-road, and blah, blah, blah. But if you're doing, for example, I don't know, uh, if I have to, I don't know, if I have to mention something else, it could be different. Um, Paris, best Paris, oh, better. Paris, Brest, Paris. Uh, this is a different one. It's a different road and probably you're going to be in the need of different, um, yes, different clothing and different setup and stuff. So you learn by doing and you yeah. also know yourself a bit better, even yeah, and, gear-wise. And also your your ambitions for, for the event because it's a, complete different style of riding if you are like aiming for a well it, it doesn't even have to be a, a, a top placement in on the podium or something like this but it's if do you want to ride your bike at like the pointy end of your own physical ambition or do you just want to enjoy the road enjoy the trip um have a bikepacking event with good company and if the latter is the case then you naturally you need more more luggage uh, otherwise you won't enjoy it if you're Absolutely. doing like touring with a racing equipment it sucks <laughs> because you you have time and you could enjoy it but you don't have the stuff that you need for enjoyment like uh something to to brew a coffee in the morning or stuff like this extra pair of shoes extra pair of shoes yeah <laughs> for example or just sleep it <laughs> no it's great um let's go quickly on then on the book so the book called I have to write because I make mistakes all the time ultra cycling and bikepacking um I mean there are different ways right and we were discussing about that in another conversation that we had before um there are a lot of books outside there there is a, there are a lot of books that are talking about adventure there are a lot of books that are talking about experience in a specific journey or in a specific I mean journey in sense of really physical journey from A to B or just journey your journey into bikepacking for example that's something different because here you want to talk about science you want to talk about the science behind the coaching behind the training behind the experience behind everything but also there it's something with a tiny bit of a different ones because it's not just a scientific book where you have your papers you have your studies you have your research you have the graphs of course you have a lot of those uh, in your book and you have I mean it's really specifically and scientifically based and backed up so it's wonderful for that but you are also putting inside um a human touch because you have also a lot of quotes and a lot of comments and a lot of tips 
not only from your side, but also from ultra endurance racers or people that are in bikepacking and ultra endurance. How everything came together, how actually you shaped this frame that works super good and it's really enjoyable to read. Yeah, <laughs> um, difficult question actually. Um like before it's a development so there was not uh, one point where i decided okay i will write a scientific book about how to prepare for ultra cycling events but the first step was for me to yeah to write a compendium for myself actually so that i don't have to look things up all over again and also for my coaches that's like a training plan for them as well um and then it developed over time because at one point i noticed okay this is like getting I'm, I'm producing a lot of content here and probably this would go into the direction of a book. And then I talked with my, with my friends, uh, Matti Köster and Jochen Böhringer, who are also doing ultra cycling events and they are quite successful. Actually, I think some of the listeners will, will know them. Um, uh, one of, the, of them, Jochen was also in the podcast. So shout yeah, out Jochen, to Jochen as well. <laughs> Jochen was at your podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, they had a lot of ideas and contributed uh, a lot to the first, first involvement of this book because they brought new topics to my mind. And then I decided, okay, this could be a perfect, a perfect, um, idea for an, for a really good book to have this perspective from sports science, but combine it with insights of athletes who really are experienced and are even more experienced than me in some areas. So I decided, okay, let's let's take it to a different level and just write some athletes and see if they want to contribute. And with each athlete, I included a new topic or a a new, not sometimes not a whole topic or a whole chapter, but a new touch to one chapter that already already existed because I got to um, got to know a lot of perspectives on the same topics, and I think this was really really helpful for me to write the book actually. And at the same time, it showed that a lot of the theory that is out there um, is backed up by experienced racers. So this was very important for me. Um, because there's no literature body on long distance cycling. You know, you have like um, literature on trail running. There's a lot actually already, um, but there's no, not much science for long distance cycling. There's just a, a couple of papers actually. And um, so I had to, to fall back on papers from other disciplines. And then you need some, some proof that it works. So it was like for me always the best part if I had already researched the topic and then I interviewed James Hayden, for example, and he, um, he was one example with, with sleep deprivation because I drew a lot of um, the um, body of literature on sleep deprivation from the medical sector because there's a lot of research there because they are doing 24 and 48 hour shifts. And obviously they need to know uh, what they, what can be done about sleep deprivation. And um, one advice is actually to, to sleep beforehand. So um, if you're, if you're like at Sylvester and you tell your kids uh, you can stay up a little bit later today <laughs> to see new, new year's Eve um, it's actually possible to sleep beforehand so if you have like 10 days in advance and That's you yeah you just prolong the time that you stay in bed 
you, you know, normally you go to bed at 10 o'clock in the evening and you just go to bed at nine and also you you get up one hour later maybe mm-hmm. so you will lie two more hours in bed and even not without the, sleeping stefan yeah not yeah yeah um not at the first day or at the second day you won't fall asleep right mm. away but in the course of 10 days you will also get more sleep actually oh, just nice. by spending more time in your sleeping position so to say yeah mm-hmm. and um Afterwards, if you have a, a period of sleep deprivation, you will still um, feel sleepy and you will still be sleep deprived, but your cognitive abilities, they will, they will stay good for a longer period of time. So you have better concentration and you have a, um, a smaller risk of uh, seeing hallucinations and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So... It does not help against feeling tired, but you feel tired the same, but you can still um, concentrate better. So okay. this is very important if you're doing, for example, off-road riding. Yeah, And that's that's a strategy that James Hayden already used. So this was part of his routine to, before he races a race like Transcontinental or Silk Road, he tries to, to get this extra sleep in advance mm-hmm. and also Mati Costa does this um, with like he uses this time also to to concentrate better to you know he he has these this two-week period in front of one of his races where he will call his grandmother and his parents and he will say okay guys I will do a race in two weeks and I, w- I need some extra rest before the race actually not after the race to to recover but before the race to be fully rested in a mental way and so he already at this point he cuts like his social um interactions to a minimum and tries to sleep more tries to be really well prepared from the mind for for an endeavor like a a, a north cape 4000 for example Mm That's super interesting. I love that actually we kicked off uh, straight away with the sleep deprivation, but uh, I have a tiny little question on that. So it's interesting to know that James, that, I mean, was one of the person that actually was talking about sleep deprivation and was actually one having such a clear, I mean, he has clear plans for everything. We all know James. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he knows actually what he's doing and he has plans in everything. And actually one of his quotes, I remember, I remember I heard, talked, I heard about it actually during an interview is setting a plan all the time. Even if you have to change the plan, it's good to have a plan. So it's everything set. And it seems like with sleeping, it's uh, it's also one of those things. But also, it's interesting to know that he has plans also, also on that. But because he's one of those racers that takes care of his sleep more than others. Because, I mean, yeah. he is the kind of racer that sleeps more than uh, than others i'm thinking about for example sofian sofian doesn't sleep basically even if yeah. <laughs> he changed it changed his mind actually when he does longer races like the silk road monte race that now he won three times in a row you can see that he sleeps a bit more and everything but james usually is the kind of person that in order also to get into the rhythm of a race the first time he sleeps um, the first days he sleeps more and then probably gets a bit more in cutting sleep but still sleeps a lot sleeps more not a lot yeah and also in transcontinental race he's the kind of person that in order to take care of his sleep he stops at hotels air at least this was his uh plan at that time he sleeps 
all the time in hotels in order to take care of his sleep and uh, and everything like that. So we have people that are really taking care of their sleep in this way and uh, really feeling comfortable and sleeping a tiny bit more in order to anyways, to perform better during the race. And then there are people that are cutting the sleep and keep up moving, maybe slowly, but keep them moving. Also, there's slowly. We have to discuss about how slow it's slow, <laughs> but um, that's that's something. So how do you also then train the sleep deprivation? So because, of course, the less you sleep, the more, uh, the less you sleep, the less, let's say, sharp, in taking decision you are, but also you risk way more also to have hallucination or don't feel imbalanced or just being cold and everything like that. How yeah. do you sleep on being a bit more, I mean, endurance-driven without sleeping? Yeah, I think that you cannot train sleep deprivation. Mm. You know, it will just, it will hit you. Mm. And it does not make sense um, to, for example train a lot in a sleep deprived state mm. this will be more harm to your training because you will sacrifice your physical recovery if you already cut down your sleeping times in your training and in your everyday life so this wouldn't be a strategy i would recommend but it's important to know how far you can go so it's riding in a sleep deprived state it's a very controversial topic in ultra cycling because this is yeah, we see the first race organizers who who um, have the regimen that you need to sleep and there are certain stop times. And this is very controversial. How far can you go without um, yeah, being a danger not only to yourself, but also to others? So this is also for me, it's very important to always stress this that you are not only responsible for yourself because you're always taking part in events that are, um, even if they are off-road, there are other participants on the same roads, there's traffic and there's there always can, there can always happen something. So you need to be aware of your responsibility and it's not uh, legitimate to cut your sleep to the, to the, um, yeah, most minimal value possible for yourself so if you're planning on doing a strategy with with um yeah just a couple of hours sleep during such events it's it's necessary to know uh, how far can you go and this is a thing that you can only um evaluate with experience so it's important to know do i have a certain time during the night when like the sleep deprivation hits me the most because most people they will know this if they have gone through a full night there's always around the same time that they that they feel oh no it's really getting it's getting um the worst so it's good to know things like this and then you can maybe uh, include a power nap or um even if a five minute break can be enough to to vitalize your cognitive abilities so it's not enough to physically recover to just sleep for five or ten minutes but it's enough to get an to get your cognitive abilities back for maybe two or three hours mm -hmm. and then you can push through this this down this this low that you would that you are experiencing can you also train power napping i think so yes mm. because you can train on how how fast you fall asleep because there's people they they feel it's different or it's difficult to to fall asleep during events and that's something that you can practice um because there's 
I think the first thing is getting comfortable with the situation. Um, if you're, for example, sleeping outside, it's for some people it's it's weird because it's not the it's not they are not used to it, and there's different noises, different smells. So maybe for some people it's almost impossible to sleep in a forest at night mm -hmm. because it's a uh, it's the atmosphere of the of the forest at night with their with the wild animals that are doing some quirky noises or stuff like this, and they won't fall asleep there. And the same person maybe can sleep at uh, in front of a shop that is that is closed at night. And other people, they are terrified of sleeping in these, I, I like to call it semi-civilization. It's like part of civilization, but it's there's no people at night. Mm -hmm. And some guys are afraid of exactly this situation. And I am one of those guys because I'm more afraid of, um, you know, meeting some weird guys at yeah. night and yeah. they find me there lying there. They don't know who I am. And I don't know. They, you don't know what happens. Yeah, I don't know what happens. It's unpredictable for me. So I am one of those who prefers to be... Uh, like hidden in nature i like to be in the middle of the forest and i know there's no people here and even if somebody passes probably he won't even notice me lying mm -hmm. there in the ditch and i'm yeah i have no problem with the noise of the animals but i am i have a problem with people walking by when i sleep so for me it's it's this first choice that's very important um that you know where do i feel safe personally and there's no good or bad it's just a personal decision um, and it's very, very important to feel safe because if you don't feel safe, you will never be able to sleep. Maybe you will be able to do a little power nap if you already are like super sleep deprived. But if you plan on sleeping each night for three or four and a half hours, you really need this spot where you feel comfortable and where you feel safe. And then you can give in to the sleep and this will make it easier already. And then there's um, other little tactics to reduce the time that you need to fall asleep um, which can start with bringing routines from your everyday life to to the event mm -hmm. for me it's, it's brushing my teeth for example this is like some people try to not to brush the teeth before they do a power nap or before they nap in racing because they are afraid of waking themselves up with a sharp toothpaste or stuff like this. Yeah. Um, but for me, this is like a routine. I brush my teeth before I go to bed if I'm at home. And I bring this situation into the event by brushing my teeth before I lay down in my BV. And this helps me to calm myself down and helps me to fall asleep faster. And it's the same with autogenic training. Some people like to do that, that if you train already, um, at home and you're awake at night because you have so many thoughts that are running through your head and then you just lie down and you do this autogenic training where you you have like a routine with strict or always the same sentence that you repeat and repeat and then you will fall asleep because your mind gets empty and you get get off this these thoughts that are running through your mind and um, this is also a very useful method to do in in ultra cycling if you're just want to do a, sh a short power nap, empty your mind, use like autogenic training to help you empty your mind and then you will fall asleep faster. And, <laughs> okay, I also have a lot of things already to say to this topic, obviously. Um, You've wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> another another good thing is to, to really allow yourself the break. 
because um, many of us struggle to to give ourselves the rest that we need during an event because it's we want to be fast because it's it's nice to be be fast and you have this urge to be as fast as you can just for yourself and then giving in to a sleep break means that you will won't be riding and you know that and this is a conflict with your mm -hmm. with your goal and then you just lie down and your brain gets running and you are thinking about oh my competitors they are overtaking me now or they the gap gets even bigger and then you can't fall asleep because you are you're just overthinking the situation so it's important if you have made the decision to have a nap then you must be determined to have this nap and this means like i don't know maybe half an hour before you are doing the nap to calm down yourself to think about um how this nap will help you that you will be faster afterwards that yeah. you will make better decisions and that you that you really you you have to have it in your brain you marked in your brain that this is a good decision for you and you will be actually faster even if this means stopping for 30 minutes it's like um megan hackenen uh she has a very very good quote uh or she she made a very good um quote for for the interview um she calls this the um the fatigue death spiral because when she raced the north cape 4000 and became the the fastest woman there um she was behind her personal time plan and she decided each night okay i will cut another 30 minutes of my sleep time and she repeated this night after night and at one point she she noticed okay i i get uh slower each day i oh. write i write longer hours but i'm getting slower in the total distance i'm riding each day because yeah your body gets ever worse from day to day because you cut like the last uh, recovery period that your body had and if you're cutting this yeah your riding time will will deteriorate um during the event and also your decisions they will get they will not get better. So if you're deciding on, okay, how many things can I do in one break? Where do I have to go? Maybe you, you lose, um, you don't have the track, the, the track in your mind and you will, yeah, make, you will make stupid decisions and you will make slow decisions. And at one point in time, she just said, okay, I need a break. And she, she got a hotel room. I think she even had a bubble bath. She thinks she's the first person I ever got That's to know amazing that had a bubble bath during a bikepacking wow. race and yeah but she just needed it she, yeah she needed to calm herself down to to give her body the rest and afterwards she could ride again she could ride hard and i think she finished yeah fastest woman but also in the in the man's category i think she was fifth place or something wow. like this so she still was very very fast and but if you just keep going um yeah you get into this fatigue death spiral and the worst thing about it is not to notice that it's a spiral and you will just spiral downwards you think you're making good decisions you think you will be faster overall because you're sleeping less moving more but at the end um yeah you spiral downward and it's not not the best thing to do absolutely absolutely um 
still on uh, we talked about uh, the sleeping uh, deprivation and uh, the trainings that you can have so my question here would be uh, so is not everything about caffeine then is not everything about uh, having a lot of coffee and um, don't sleep at all so just no. to say that coffee nutrition how does it look like training for this huge amount of things and kilometers that you have to burn with your muscles. Yeah. Yeah. So, so caffeine, it's a separate chapter in the book, actually. So there's a lot to, to know or that you can learn to how to best use caffeine, but yeah, let's switch to the, to the nutrition topic, maybe. Okay. That's perfect. So... <laughs> let's, do that. let's do that. I mean, caffeine is one of my favorite topics. That's why, but yeah. And I don't, I want to leave it that way. So if I tell you maybe drinking coffee is not the best idea, uh, this will take out the fun for you. So let's not talk about this. That's perfect. Let's and go about then you food. Can, you can eat a you lot. You can drink liters of, of coffee still perfect. and <laughs> it's perfect for you. I love it. I love it. I will be sure to go deep into that topic on the book. That's why we have the book anyways. Yeah. So perfect. <laughs> but because actually eating food is also one of the favorite things that I do in life. And I think that actually having a lot of food is something that happened during one of those events or during your backpacking trip. I remember, I think it was a quote uh, by, by Emma Pulley, and she would say that ultra cycling is just an eating competition with some cycling in the middle. Yeah. Um, how does it work? Yeah, she, she pretty much got the point there. So it's you have to learn to eat for ultra cycling events, or at least some of us. There's people for them, it's very easy to eat a lot of food and all kinds of food um, during a race. And then there's the people that tend to eat uh, not enough or it, for them, it's it's pretty hard. I know if, you, if you're um, looking on more the competitive side and uh, it's one big topic if you come from triathlon as well, um, because uh, many athletes there have this feeling during the marathon that they are have this bloating feeling and then they struggle to eat enough and they they are risking their times um, because the the marathon gets gets pretty slow and in ultra cycling it's the same you you need to learn to digest a huge amount of food and um, from my point of view this is something that you can actually train it's part of training, like riding your bike. Mm -hmm. And for some people, this is harder. For some, it's easier. Um, but at the end, it's necessary. Because, um, you know, if you have like a, a lot of willpower, yeah. you can always avert a did not finish. You will, you will get a long way just with your willpower. Yeah. But if you are not eating enough, you can do nothing. You can have all the willpower in the world, but at some point you will just not be able to to go on so so eating enough is the the baseline together with riding so together together with um, endurance training this is the baseline of competing in long distance cycling yeah definitely mm -hmm. so i mean what would be actually then your suggestion in order to really train 
to eat a lot because really you need to put a lot of calories in, uh, in your body during uh, yeah. bikepacking or ultra endurance event. Let's talk about, I mean, races themselves because then yeah. you are not even, because I think that when you are bikepacking, it's probably easier uh, to eat a lot because you can stop more. You can even just uh, sit down camping, boiling your water to do your favorite pasta and taking your time at night because you have long nights anyways and you can do it. But during yeah. events, you really need to stop and I don't know, the classic of the ultra endurance event are people that are getting tons of sneakers and yeah. chocolate bars or whatever a lot of calories super concentrated and a lot of sugary uh drinks connecting to the point that before not so many people in ultra endurance event are drinking a lot of coca-cola most of them they're drinking uh, fanta or sprite because it's the same sugar but no caffeine so yeah yeah but it's not only about uh let's say uh fuzzy drinks and chocolate bars right yeah it's it depends because um i think during competitive bicycle or bikepacking events you don't have that many food choices because oftentimes you are limited actually to what the gas station has to offer mm -hmm. and if you are at the end of the pack, probably the gas station even has to offer less than if you are at the front of the pack. So maybe you have to go with the chocolate bars that are that are still there. Um, but I think you can divide it into like your your everyday nutrition already, which is also part of pre preparing for long distance cycling, and obviously the nutrition during the event. Because one thing that you can do is to prepare your gut for bad food choices. Yes. So this is. This is um, something that you can actually do. So you can, um, your body can tolerate uh, for a couple of days that you're eating a mess, and that's that's fine. It's it's not healthy, of of course, but it's not about healthy. Uh, uh, probably not. It's not your highest priority if you're doing long distance cycling. Um, so it's it's fine to to eat a lot of sugar and a lot of chocolate bars and crappy drinks during this event. Um, but it's important then to prepare your gut and to prepare your body um, during your everyday life for for these for these uh, scenarios. And uh, for example, um, you can you can influence the the population of a, of your microbiome. So mm. we have a lot of bacteria. There's I think uh, thirty around thirty five thousand different bacterias living in our gut. So. Yeah. Yeah, the amount of the actual bacteria is in the somewhere in the billions, but it's uh, about thirty-five thousand different species, um, and it's very important that we have a lot of different species of bacteria living in our gut, and our our daily nutrition influences this quite heavily. So if we are eating a lot of um, uh, fiber, high high fiber um, diets with lots of uh, fruits and vegetables and stuff like this. This is very, very good for the bacteria living in our gut because they like to, they are living on this stuff. And this is like the, the first thing to have a healthy uh, microbiome in your gut. On the other hand, if you are eating only processed foods and um, lots of meat, then the, the, diversity of our microbiome that it will diminish over time and it will specialize on this kind of food and um, this is one thing that that scientists uh, are looking at for um, um, yeah general health issue so if your gut is healthy 
uh, chances are pretty good that you, that your whole body is healthy. Mm-hmm. And if you try to um, implement this into your everyday life, your body will be more forgiving in this racing situation. If you're then eating crap for two weeks, okay, <laughs> your your body will forgive you afterwards. Okay. And so this is like one part of the what can you do in your daily life already. And then of course it's the actual nutrition during the race because the first thing is eating enough like it's it's hard maybe to eat uh, the 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 amount that is necessary so my first step is always to really calculate uh what is my energy need for the race approximately because it's easier to um to picture how much I have to eat if I have a number. So my first step is always um, approximate uh, by my age and my my body weight, stuff like this. What's my, my daily need of energy and how much um, do I have to add because I will be on my bike for, I don't know, 15 hours each day or 20 hours, depending on event and uh, your riding style. But if you have these two components, you can already um calculate how much energy will you or how how high will be your energy expenditure during the race and i found myself i find it way easier to imagine the amount of food i have to each uh, i have to eat each day if i know this number the total number for example this this one thing i'm doing with my coaches um i calculate for them the this number and then i i ask them what's their favorite food and I say, say them, okay, um, like um, I have one one coach who is doing the Free Peaks bike race um, next year and he likes to eat pizza on his way and he's not riding competitively, but so he has the time to eat a pizza each each day for lunch or for dinner. Um, but uh, I, I calculated something like 168 pizzas. <laughs> so it's <Wow>. easy <laughs> it's easy for him to 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 have this picture in his mind because it's it's hard to to say, okay, you should aim for 6,000 calories each day. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, okay, how, how much is that? Yeah. And if you translate this into your favorite food in pizza, burger, Snickers, whatever, um, then it's easy. And I know, ah, okay, this, this is a lot. So I should, at each gas station stop, I should eat a little bit more than I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then I try to increase this step by step. So there's no sense... Like in the book, there's a chapter on how much or what is the maximum that our body can can take in in one hour, for example, because there's a limit to that. Our gut can only, it, there's like a, a, diff, um, a certain amount of transport proteins. And if, if they are working at the maximum, you can eat all that you want, but uh, the nutrients, they will not, and the energy, it will not arrive at your body because mm-hmm. it will just get more and more in your in your stomach and at one point you will have this bloating bloating feeling and you uh yeah won't be able to go on so um it's not not only necessary to know what's the maximum amount that my body can um, absorb but you also need to slowly um increase the amount that you're eating each hour because if I say to you, yeah, okay, Stefano, you should eat 90 grams of um, of carbohydrates each hour. And do your, during your normal rides, maybe you only eat, I don't know, one chocolate bar every two hours. Mm-hmm. 
and then you start eating 90 grams each hour, you will feel like, oh no, this is way too much and yes. your body won't be able to absorb this at once. So it's important to start with, okay, we will try to eat a little bit more and then we will increase this amount during the course of time. And most importantly, it's this is a way to build a routine because eating regularly has to become a routine. Mm -hmm. And uh, many rookies, they start with cycling and they eat after after their their ride because during the ride they feel like oh i i don't need it i don't feel, feel like i'm needing more energy and then at home or the next day then they have the big dinner big lunch stuff like this um and that's the wrong way because you need you need this routine you need to be um trained to eat every hour so this is one thing that i like to do with uh, first the visualization and then also building routines for example if you have the your garmin or your wahoo in front of you and you see there the time that is elapsing and one routine to build um, is that you are eating always at the full hour for example mm -hmm. that makes it very easy not to lose track and to make sure that you are eating regularly Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, actually, there are some bicycle computer Wahoo, for example. You can put alarms. So yes, yeah, even that. Like, yeah. I do it with water as well because I have problems. I don't have problems with food. I have to say, I because I like to eat, but with water, I forget about. Especially in winter, you forget about drinking, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you set up an alarm or, as you were saying, something you calculate it, then it's it's easier. I usually put an alarm every fifteen minutes to have a sip of water or whatever, like this fifteen, I think, and then eating regularly is not going to be a problem. No, but that's super interesting. A quick question that I have still about nutrition. You were saying you need to calculate. Um, how much you're burning with your riding? How much does a power meter helps with that? Very much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. It's, it's also that's another. It's not only about how strong you are on the bike, but it's also good for burning yeah. energy uh, topics. Yes. 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 Because you can like um, there's a formula in the book how you can calculate if you know your average wattage uh, for the course of an hour, you can calculate it. Um, it's always an approximation because each of us, it's uh, a little bit different in how economically we are riding our bikes. So some of us are needing a bit more energy or a little bit, little bit less energy, but um, there's a rule of thumb inside and you can, you can then derive with a pretty good value for yourself. Yeah. Perfect. That's amazing. Another little topic that I wanted to, to talk about is usually the thing that you see the most, I mean, uh, ultra endurance races or events or everything you see that most of the time the things that are causing a lot of scratches are neck pain with all the super i mean uh, i would say you can we saw photos of this kind of thing probably with the neck for example and everything like that that people that yeah. cannot stand because they are not training the uh, the neck muscles so actually the head goes down but next problem saddle sores and what else is there something like all the numbness and uh, uh, junction uh, all this kind of uh, junction pain and everything like that so you can train this right yeah. it's not only then about and with this we can also go into the cross training part it's not only about being strong on the bike but you need to get stronger everywhere in the body yeah exactly and it's like with nutrition some people uh, some things are easier for some some are harder and uh, it's the same for example with numb hands and numb feet um first step 
always is good bike fitting. So this is always a basic. thing I say. Basic, yes. Some if somebody who has numb pants, numb feet, but didn't have a, a professional bike fitting yet, it's worth to spend some money there because um, this can really help you a lot. Mm. So this is always the first step. But still, then there's some people are just more vulnerable to to um, to this nerve damage. And um, some people are less vulnerable. And to some extent, you have to live with it, maybe. So I, I don't think that there's probably the 100% chance that you will get rid of numb pants, at least uh, if you're doing off-road riding. I think on road riding, you can go a long way um, already by, by uh, using aero bars a lot. Mm. So I know from um, some people who need like their hands for their for their everyday life be it because there are musicians or stuff like this it's very very important not to lose the the feeling in your fingers also because it stays and for longer right i mean losing the feeling on uh, i would say uh, fingers or na or, uh, or thumbs or whatever um sorry fingers of toes i mean it lasts for weeks after the Ma race months months it can Ooh. it can yeah in Ooh. some cases it can last for 6 7 months oh, crazy um but it's it's a thing that comes back because uh, there's like three different kinds of nerve damages and typically in in long distance cycling you develop like the the smallest kind of nerve damage because you can imagine um a nerve a bit like an electric wire so have you, you have the actual cable in the middle and then you have a surrounding um so that the electric impulses can yeah, don't you get, get pain if you touch the wire. And our yeah. nerves are the same. You have like the axon in the middle. And normally we are just damaging the outer outer shell of the nerve. Makes and sense. this is done either by um, by pressure, by compression, or by, by fraction. So it can be the case if you are um, holding your, your handlebar very tightly or you have problems with your with numb fingers. Probably there's too much too much pressure somewhere um, along the nerve where where it where it um, glides normally, and then you have this punctual compression, and that's where the nerve gets damaged. And this can then they this can then take up to several weeks or months to heal. But it will heal because yeah. the the nerve if itself, like what's in the inner shelf that's completely undamaged usually okay and then you have a different um, reason for this numbness and that's um along the path of your nerve so it's not uh, necessarily at the at the point where you lose the feeling so you lose the feeling at the at the fingers but the nerve it glides or it goes up the the arm and through the shoulder joint and then into the spinal cord again and if there's um, uh, tenseness in your muscles or your fascia that are surrounding the, the nerve, then there may be a point where the nerve cannot glide freely. So it may be the case that a problem with your shoulder causes your fingers to go numb. So um, this is uh, one thing that um, a good stabilization program mm. takes into account. So. Um, I always say it's I, I don't like the word, for example, core stability, because um, 
if you read a book about core stability, this will always be about your um, your your abs and your lower back. Um, but I I'd call it deep muscles. That's the the muscles that are that are doing or that are um, guaranteeing the stability of your whole body, and it's the muscles that are most deep in your body and. If you have like tensions there, this can even cause uh, like numbness in your hands because your your shoulder joint does not work as it should be, for example. So yeah, for some athletes, it's more important to to train stuff like this than to ride their bike because if you yeah have a lot of pain in your hands, you probably won't finish. Yeah, and then the, all the riding kilometers that you did are for nothing. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And uh, I mean, that's super good that actually, as you were saying, because the thing that you mentioned at the beginning, it, the power of your will and your motivation can do a lot. But if you are in a world of pain, because uh, I don't know, you have this um, uh, deep muscles that are not completely trained, or maybe you have actually this, um, your problem with, uh, uh, with the nerves and everything, then this is the thing that is going to cause you uh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of those kinds of those kinds of problems and i'm not a fan of riding through pain because um at some point i have the um, impression that in our scene there's a little bit uh heroism connected with with going through pain um because it's some people think it's necessary to be a top-notch rider to be able to push through this pain but from my point of view your highest priority should always be to be pain free and if you structure your training to being pain-free you are going a long way in being a competitive rider because if you're riding without pain you will notice how fast you can go <laughs> it makes a lot of sense and i love actually the point that you're taking here to say stefan yes we have this kind of heroism or badass attitude in cycling that is something that also hits my nerves and is pun was not intended uh it's a bit my nerves because i mean you need to go be out on the we are out on the bike because we enjoy it of yeah. course there are some people that are enjoying pain of course i mean not judging anybody there but it's not that if you are not getting pain you're not enjoying enough it's the contrary actually the more you train and the better you feel you don't need to train to be the fastest you need to train in order to feel comfortable on the bike. And then next time that you're going to be out on the bike, even just for two hours, and you come back home and still you feel good and you can live your life with your family or whatever, it's going to be better also for yourself. Otherwise, you're going to say, oh, no, I actually hammered completely down myself. I came back up at home and I was useless. I don't know if the day after you want to go out on the bike. Yeah. And the most of us, we are just doing these events for enjoyment. I mean, I mean, if you're looking at the transcontinental, there's... A I don't know, a couple of dozen riders who are actually competing for, for the win. And then there's the huge rest of us. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, yes, of course, you want to be as fast as you can personally. But yeah, <laughs> there's only that much that you should be sacrificing for that. So it's always good to think about your training and what can you do against pain or to prevent pain. And also this... The reason why I did a whole chapter about pain and pain perception. And it's very important from my point of view. <laughs> it makes a little sense. Um, another question that I have. We're talking about endurance cycling here. We're talking about endurance sport. Can we train? I mean, endurance sport, as you were mentioning, uh, maybe, yes, 
couple of dozens of people transcontinental race they're competing for the win even them i think that for these kind of events they have normal jobs and everything so our schedule is really super busy so i don't know how many people they have really in their day in their diary the time to uh, to spend i don't know uh, a full week outside or full hours outside many of us that are doing these kind of things they are just they have one two hours a day uh, even less let's say 10 hours a week to train can you train for endurance just by having tight schedules yes Good answer. Yes, it works. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it has restrictions. Yeah, yeah but, but it works because, um, like you said, um, most of us, we are not able to to train for 20, 25 hours a week. It's just not possible. And if it's not possible, uh, you shouldn't aim for it. Again, my point of view, because it's, uh, it's a bad thing for your motivation if you always set a goal for each each week and you set the goal of, okay, I will ride my bike for 15 hours this week and then life happens and you have a work schedule or you have to take your kids from kindergarten earlier and then you will not be able to reach your 15-hour riding goal. And this happens again and again and again. And this will suck the motivation out of you somehow. Mm-hmm. So it's I'm a big fan of realistic goals and realistic training plans to reach those goals. And um, the good thing is that actually you can be a competitive rider with um, with a time, I call it time-optimized approach. Um, that's not that much about spending hour after hour on your bike, but um, yeah, getting the most from each hour that you are spending on the bike. And that works very good with, uh, for example, sweet spot training. And also if you if you add stuff that you didn't do before, like, um, like a real strength training with with weights or with um, mm. an explosive strength training. Um, this does not take a lot of time. It's just maybe one hour a week that you need for this stuff of training. And it adds a lot to your current form, especially if you haven't done so in the far, this training stuff. Um, but it has a restriction because um, cycling is maybe not the most difficult um sport from from a technical point of view if you compare it with with climbing for example or maybe even with with uh with sports like like tennis or football or stuff like this but still you have always this um this um this this machine this bicycle yeah you know you have your your own body and you have the bicycle and you have to learn that these two things work uh, good together in the most efficient way. So there's a lot of studies that are um, proving that just by riding your bike, your body gets more efficient. You know, so even a pro rider, he gets more efficient during the course of his pro career, okay. and he already has a lot of kilometers in his legs. Um, so you need a volume part just to become more efficient. But if you had the the big volumes in your past, for example, then it's a good plan or it's very, very easily possible to um, reduce the hours you are spending on the bike and be, um, be in a very good form nonetheless. For example, we talked about Jochen at the beginning mm-hmm. and he spends no more than five hours on his bike every week. 
and nonetheless he he is in the top three of atlas mountain race and stuff like this with five hours a week which is it's incredible it is incredible. i think it's probably a quarter of what sofian is riding yeah. probably i'm just guessing but from what you see um i'd say something like this um but for him it's only possible because he was a very ambitious mountain biker uh as a teenager and so at that time he had his body had the opportunity to become very efficient and now he can he can build on that even even though this time is 10 years ago or even more in his case um, he can build on it um, so if you have the first thing if you are starting with the sport you're completely new to cycling um, probably you have to go or you have to do the distance you have to collect some miles but if you are coming from a touring background for example like like i did when i started with the sport um, you already have a lot of kilometers in your legs and then you can already um, implement a more time optimized approach and you can get along with with fewer hours on the bike uh let's flip the question around so you can train for long distances only by doing some effective time on the bike so with a few hours can you do in reverse do can you do ultra endurance events or ultra endurance races or whatever you want to call it just by doing long hours on the bike without specific training without training your sweet spots without training your um, vo2 max just go out and ride bikes would make you let's say would make your journey with bike packing with bike packing events and races yeah. possible i think so it's possible yeah but you will not reach your personal best okay okay and you will spend more time for the same uh like for the um same end result mm -hmm. and if you have if you have the free time and you enjoy riding why not i know there's uh this guy robert muller in germany he's mm -hmm. uh He's just riding his bike as much as he can. And it works well for him. It's it's okay. But yeah, as you said, most of us, we don't have enough time to just go out and riding each day for three or six hours. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we have to put more thought into how we train to get the same end result. Makes sense. Makes sense. I love it. I mean, diff different entries and different styles are always the best. The thing yeah. that I really like. Um, I have two more questions. And uh, I will start with this. Is it worth it to train for just uh, touring or bikepacking? Or you can just give away without so much training on that. And on the other side, um, yeah, I mean, that's the main question. Because I start with the thing, is that any difference or things that you can train or even just avoiding training for bikepacking than yeah. for uh, races and events and whatever is there? Yeah, I would... I was would always recommend training, but mm. obviously I'm biased as a coach. Of course, of <laughs> but, course. Um, no, I would I would always recommend it to a certain amount because um, I just had an experience this year, which was very sad actually. Um, when I reached the the finish of the European Divide at the most northern point, um, I, I reached it in the middle of the night at. 12 o'clock, something like this. So I decided to camp there and to enjoy the, the beach view in the morning, have my breakfast there and then cycle back um, to the nearest town with an airport. And uh, just when I wanted to go back, um, another guy started his journey there 
So we decided, okay, we can go this 50 kilometer, we can ride together. Oh, super nice. And um, yeah, we really enjoyed it, had had a nice talk during during this this ride. And um, I told him what's lying ahead of him. And he was like super excited because he wanted to do the whole European Divide Trail in one go. And he had a, a four month, I think four month uh, time of his work and prepared everything for it and was really looking forward to it. And um, I think it was after about five, five or six days, mm. um, I got a got a message from him, and he told me, "Oh, Stefan, um, my my knee is hurting so much, and uh, you know, you we talked about my book and what I'm that I'm working as a medical fitness coach, and he was like, okay, um, can you recommend some some exercises I can do against against um, this pain?" And I was like, okay, I saw him riding and um, he told me that he was not training at all because he was working a lot to get this time off his work, which, yeah, it's logic, but um, he, wa- he, had, he had no time to ride spikes. So I gave him some exercises um, that he should try, um, but they didn't work. So a couple of days later, again, a message and yeah, I'm seeing a doctor now. And he said, it's iliotibial band friction syndrome and probably I will have to quit EDT here. Oh. So, and this is super sad because um, ITBFS is it's happens quite often, and you can um, actually there's not it's not like uh, if you have a, a crash, an accident, and you break a bone. Okay, that shit happens. That's you can do nothing against that. Mm. But having something like ITBFS is. Yeah, you can actually prevent it if you put the work in. And I think it's pretty sad to have a yeah, to have this plan to ride a, such a thing and you are really looking forward to it and then you start and after a couple of days you you don't feel good anymore. So, yeah, I would recommend not maybe not train as if you want to race, but to put put some thought into it and to keep your body moving and prepare yeah. yourself at least a little bit yeah that's something that actually i mean uh, people that know me people that have been listening to this podcast for a while now they know that i'm not the best fan of performance because i'm not competitive and even if people say but i'm not competitive with others i'm not competitive with myself me neither i mean not even with myself i don't need to be to show anything to myself or to somebody else that i can do things or whatever i'm not competitive but also on the other side i have a plan i am actually training i'm training yeah my five hours a week not so much but still to do what i don't know i have actually my coach telling me all the time do you have a goal no i just don't want to feel in pain when i'm doing some uh, uh, when i'm doing the rides i just don't want to feel exhausted that i don't want to go on the bike anymore for the next week after i did a long ride I just want to feel good on the bike so yeah. you can also train for that you don't only have to train of course if you have a goal if you have a race to do whatever amazing you have also a super amazing motivation to train every day hard but also on the other side, if even if you're not raising and stuff, having a good base for enjoying your rides is always good. Of course, I'm not talking about commuting to work. You can commute to work and not have any training. But if you also have in mind that you want to enjoy your time on the bike with some nice gravel rides, because now gravel is super hype, and, uh, and everything like that, having a base, even just following a little plan or just seeing somebody who knows more, reading a book or whatever, put something into plan for the good season is always good i think yeah or at least go into every one of us has a a pain point 
some some weak spot where we always we are fragile and just put in some thought and think about what is my personal weak spot and then try to train on this weak spot and even if your if your main goal is riding your bike for long distances maybe your weak spot is your shoulder or your hip or your lower back something like this and then it makes sense to have a training plan for for your weak spot even if you are not if you don't uh, want to train a lot or you don't feel like structured training on your bike perfect but try to eliminate your weak spot and then you already have um yeah you have already covered a lot of ground of enjoying your rides more that's perfect and no pain i have the last question stefan and then we can actually go on the wrapping of the part women and men all the literature most of the literature uh that we know is really based on the man body on the body of the man uh how do you feel about that see everybody says that actually endurance sport are even better fit for the women's body mm. but what about the training then you need actually to balance also this factor out you cannot just put down a training you as a coach or in general you as a person you cannot just put down the training for men and just adapt it like most of the people do with bicycles okay uh you have this bike is for men you take a smaller size and then it's for yeah. women it's not like this what's yeah, the difference yeah. then um, yeah, there's, there's, um, as you said, the literature on um, how does training affect men and women, it's just developing, actually, because I don't know, for the last couple of decades, um, there's mostly men in research, there's like in a lot of <laughs> positions in our society, and it's uh, a big problem, actually, um, that we are ignoring like 50% of our society. Um, but that's the reason why we have a lot of um, research concerning how sports affect men, or uh, on the other hand, also how uh, medicine affects men. There's mm -hmm. not, not that much studies that's on uh, female specific. And in, in endurance sports, um, it goes a lot into our metabolism and in the topic of nutrition, because men and women um, they are not the same. There's a very, very good book for all the female listeners um, from Stacey T. Sims. Um, Dr. Sims. Called, yeah, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Yes. Stacey T. Sims. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. I read you're right. Yeah. And it's called uh, Women Are Not Small Men. And she elaborates a lot on the differences and how, uh, for example, your cycle influences your, your training. Um, and it's very important in the in the nutrition and to have some basic knowledge. So for example, in my book, um, obviously it would be too much to completely um, have, have it divided into male and female. That would be too complex for, for me at least in this book. But um, I try to highlight the most important points in the chapter nutrition, which is also the most important part or the, where, where there are the most differences between men and women. Um, because the, the reason why um, women can be very good the longer the distances get um, is um, foremost their ability to metabolize fats or to use fats as an energy source. And men are way more um, dependent on carbohydrates during the exercise. So men need to eat a lot more carbohydrates 
during the exercise, while women have the ability to, to use all the energy sources, all the macronutrients, fats, carbohydrates, and proteins as an energy source. But on the other way around, um, men are pretty independent or they, they don't care what they eat after sports. If you have, if your body has as a man enough time to recover, it's pretty much, uh, you can eat everything. Mm -hmm. You can eat carbs, you can eat protein, you can eat fats, as long as you get your energy deficit or uh, reduce your energy deficit to zero until you start again with your next session, it's fine for you. And women, they are way more dependent on carbohydrates after sports. So for women, it's very important to have a good uh, nutrition after the exercise. For example, this is one thing I try I always try with my root, uh, coaches to work with routines and I try with female athletes to establish a post-workout routine first. And when we have established a post-workout routine, then I go more into what do we eat into the workout itself. Because for women, it's way more important to have their carbs after the workout so they can recover enough until we start the next session. And yes, then of course you have the um hormonal phases um that the that your nutrition needs and you also your your workout needs they they will change over over the the cycle and there's phases where it's very very important to have enough carbs and then there's phases that are the um the hormones are more similar to men and then it's a bit less important and um, this is for example the reason why it's um it can be quite contraproductive for women um to to train without carbs because i know in, especially in long distance cycling there has been a history of of uh the the thinking that it's beneficial to train without carbs or to start your training early in the morning before our breakfast without carbs faster training to, faster training exactly to to get your fat metabolism in place or to 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 get better ability to burn fats and this is quite controversial nowadays um, even for men um, if it's beneficial at all because there's some um, you can measure objectively that some of your transport proteins increase in their number but it's controversial if this is actually actually a limiter because if there is proteins are already enough beforehand and even if they get more yeah you don't get a benefit from it because it was never a limiter and um, for women it can be quite um, dangerous to train fasted especially in when in a certain phase in their cycle um, when they are dependent on carbs um, because the body uh, already tries to to store carbs actually to store glycogen as a preparation for a potential baby afterwards so if you are then doing faster training in this in this phase um, it's doing more harm than than good yeah I have to say, actually, and I want to make a little shout out there. I love to shout out to other podcasts. There is an amazing episode of the podcast uh, from Magali Rochat. Uh, it was a couple of years old, and there was actually exactly Dr. Sims there. 
and uh, they were exactly talking about that and how actually doing the wrong exercise, something that actually happened uh, in the past quite a lot before the change and more developments in the literature anyways and in the studies. Yeah. But actually this for sure, the classic thing that happened is that women in sports, they train not in a regular way and they lose their cycle. And, yeah, and there uh, was in the past, especially in pro triathletes as well, like they did a lot of faster training and they they lose their whole muscle mass. And nowadays, this is a thing that's not done very often. I think there's some old school coaches that are tr still doing this. And yeah. maybe there's also athletes that are um, successful with this approach, but it's probably not the healthiest. And it's more important to get the energy in that you are burning. And I think there's a lot of good stories from, from female athletes that are also reporting online on their channels on how this improved their life and their their physical abilities by changing to eat more, but not gaining more weight, not gaining a bad body composition, but being being uh, more powerful. That's amazing. Uh, down below, we are gonna I'm gonna try to put uh, as much of the uh, these references that I was mentioning also this podcast from Magali Rochette was super nice. Uh, anyways. Stefan, talking about actually reference and things that I need to put down in the episode notes. Tell me more about the book. Where can we find it? You just mentioned that the first edition was in German. Now it's also translated in English. Tell me more. Yeah, I think the most important part is the English <laughs> edition, probably. So uh, uh, I have some people that are, yeah, <laughs> that are German, so probably they would feel comfortable, but I would say most of the yeah, show as I said, listening in, uh, in English. So yeah, yeah, let's start from there. So... so um, you can you can buy it um, for example on all the Amazon marketplaces the the paperback and there's also an ebook uh, for your Kindle device that you can Sorry. get there um, and if you are living in the United Kingdom or the United States uh, it's also possible to to order the the book at every bookshop so but probably the easiest way would be would be Amazon if you're thinking about buying it worldwide and if you fancy to write me a question or a comment on Instagram or stuff like this, I would also send you one from my living room. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, last thing that I want to ask you, what's next for you then, Stefan? What are you planning? What's next in terms of cycling, in terms of writing, in terms of coaching? Tell me a bit more about what's what's next for you yeah that's that's not an easy question either. There's always a lot of things going on in my mind and um you know, I'm I'm always trying to to uh, go a little bit further to develop some new stuff. So um, actually, there will be a second book um, co coming out in December, but German only, uh, which is about uh, trigger points from cycling and how you lose your your ability to move freely and without pain from cycling and what can be done against this. That's so nice. this was. A very um, yeah, you you noticed already. I'm putting a lot of effort into. Uh, doing sports pain-free and healthily because yeah, that's a big part of my of my job and my own passion. Because I I still want to do ultra-distance races when I'm, let's say, seventy. I will some sometime after races. that probably. Then after that, just travel. Just for fun. Yeah. Yes. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> but I want to do it my whole life. Uh, so I try to inform myself and educate how this can be done. And so this is a new book project that will be live um, in about one or two weeks. 
and um, yes, I will. I will have a lot of coaches right now that I'm preparing for the races next year, and I'm really looking forward to do that. And I will do a little bit of cycling myself, of course. I will do the the Mittelgebirge Classic as my first race next year, and I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, try a try to to go deep for myself again. <laughs> That's perfect. And uh, any other bikepacking race for late next year? I will do another one, but I have not uh, finally decided which one and I have not uh, registered yet. Okay. And I, I'm never doing more than two races races each season, but um, I still try to run a marathon for first time for a long period. I think oh, nice. it's probably it's uh, eight years or something ago that I did this marathon. And I always do a bikepacking trip as a vacation. So this is nothing I, I don't want to plan too much because I did the European divide the last years and it was pretty far. So I will do something that is more in Germany, France, the Netherlands. I'm not sure yet, but something where I can go with, with the train and my bicycle only. That's perfect. And where can we find actually all the new things and the new books and everything that is coming where can we find you on social media or in the internet in general you can find me on instagram at bartsman is my nickname there yeah. and um, on my homepage sbucoaching.com that's right i try to have a little block there but i've been a little bit lazy lately <laughs> i need to get it rolling again yeah 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 it makes sense stefan thanks a lot for the amazing conversation it was super cool and actually i have to say to everybody there already I'm super sorry if I was really uh, not going too deep into the things. I know that actually there is way more that you can learn from the book, but in general from a super solid talk with you, Stefan. I, uh, I tried to condense and to put also some real examples from the normal Joe that is Stefan on the microphone and from time to time also on the bike. I hope that actually it was interesting enough for you also to, to explain everything around actually your knowledge and your research and your profession. Totally. What was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Stefano. <laughs> Perfect. Ciao, ciao, Stefano. Yo, Stefan, it was super nice to talk to you about these topics. I mean, there were questions that were burning, really, inside of me. And I was happy, actually, that I could address to a professional coach. Because there are not so many coaches that really coach 100% on ultra-endurance. Because, I mean, ultra-endurance is... It's crazy, isn't it? And if you want to do something like this, also as a coach, you need these kind of sparkles in your eyes and whatever. Thanks a lot for having your voice on the broom wagon and people down below, you're going to find everything you want to know, not only about bikepacking and ultra racing, but also on how to buy and to get this book into the, your hands, maybe as a Christmas gift. So, thanks a lot. If you like this episode, give me five stars rating or any comment in your favorite uh, application where you're listening to this podcast. And if you want to send me a message, CC or Broomwigan Podcast on the Instagram. Nothing else, people. You know where to find me. I hope you liked it. Share this episode and let's talk soon before the end of the year for sure with a super cool episode or maybe with a super boring one you judge you let me know what you want bye people